0: This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kettler. And this is Episode 2 in our series for 2015, and today's date is Friday, February the 13th. And uh, Leon, what do we got on this uh, propitious date?
1: <coughs> That's right, on Friday the 13th, well, we're actually talking to former Top Gun Air combat instructor and a Blue Angel squadron leader, Rob Icefield, all the way from the US. And he talks about how he engages Navy training techniques to increase performance of top US companies. That's going to be fascinating. Indeed, it is. Yeah. And uh, then we're going to have a chat with economist Steve Kukulis, and he's going to talk to us all about how he thinks the Current political instability is going to contribute to further interest rate cuts. People reckon
0: there will be more interest rate cuts, but business itself is blaming the political uncertainty for you know, pretty slack results.
1: And the basic upshot there is that uh, the political instability means the Reserve Bank of Australia will have to do the heavy lifting.
0: We're not really in a position for them to do very much because to some extent it's going to boost the housing bubble. Sure. Which could be dangerous. Sure, sure. So uh, we're hanging on the edge of a knife blade.
1: Let's first of all talk to Rob Icefield, the former Top Gun air combat instructor, who now teaches U.S. companies how to increase their performance. Now, Rob, tell us about your company. I mean, how did you come up with the name Cat Shot, and what does Cat Shot actually do?
2: Well, the name cat shot actually comes from a naval aviation term, uh, the long term being catapult shot. And uh, being a former naval aviator, I've taken almost a thousand of those. But that's where you uh, connect uh, the jets up to a uh, catapult that's um, built on the uh, aircraft carrier's flight deck. And you launch, you go from zero to 170 knots in a few hundred feet. Uh, and the reason that we name our company after that is because we really focus on helping organizations build cultures to win. And when they get everything just right, their performance is like a cat shot. It just takes off. It's exponential.
1: Well, I'm course you, you serve two, tier, two twos as an air combat instructor as Top Gun. And, uh, you were, you reinvented the program to what it is today. You led the Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron, the Blue Angel. Commanded a strike fighter squadron and carrier air wing in combat. So tell us, I mean, how much?
2: How much uh, can companies learn from this? Well, uh, I'll tell you that uh, what's interesting is uh, two things. Number one, the Blue Angels and Top Gun are by far the uh, the uh, best cultures that I've ever been in. In fact, um, all my uh, fellow workers that have been in either one of those commands. Have said the same thing, that they spend the rest of their careers trying to duplicate the type of culture that they see in there. So that's, so that's one thing. And, and if you've ever seen the Blue Angels or, or in your terms, the, the roulettes, you know, they've, they've picked just fantastic individuals to be on these teams. They know how to prepare the teams. Their execution is unbelievable. And they have a lasting value that's with them. And people from the outside can really see something there. On the inside, you feel like you're bigger than something else. Um, so that's certainly important um, uh, for any organization to try and duplicate that. And then when it really comes to what drives an organization to perform, you know, we talk about this performance triad at CatShot, and, and all these organizations really have that. And, and let me explain that here a little bit to your audience. What the performance triad is, is really made up of three parts. It's, it's, uh, passion, free will, and focus. And if I can make an analogy between, uh, creating a fire and the, perf- and performance, they're really one and the same. To create fire, you've got to have fuel, so that's the passion. You've got to have oxygen. We call that innovation or free will. And you've got to have heat. And, and that's really the focus. And, and you can put a piece of paper out on the ground in the sun. So you've got, uh, fuel, you've got oxygen. But, uh, unless you take a magnifying glass and focus those sun's rays on it, you're not going to have fire. And that's, that's really what, um, these organizations have learned how to do, uh, is, get that equilibrium between those elements just right and then when they do that the, perform- the performance really takes off now which which uh, organizations have you worked with what companies have you worked with well i've done a lot of work in the uh, aerospace industry uh, and on defense also done some uh, renewable energy work uh, and then my favorites uh, quite frankly are the smaller startup companies that uh, do uh, very boutique things they're they're very much like uh, Top Gun or Blue Angels, where they have 25 folks or so, and they're doing really cutting, leading-edge stuff. That's really what gets me excited.
1: Now, you you talk a lot about preparing a team and the recruiting of individuals you call relentless innovators. Why is that so important, and what sets these individuals apart?
2: Well, the relentless innovators are folks that, um, they get drawn to challenges, and uh Uh, It is in their genes. Uh, They love finding challenges. And the the interesting thing uh, about Relentless Innovators is they may not be an expert in the particular field that you put them in, but they rapidly become one. They're always trying to innovate, always trying to improve. They're the ones that, uh, if you will, are staying up late at night, trying to figure out how to make things better. And when you're trying to get a team and really hone it, uh, for example, putting a, uh, a flight demonstration uh, team together for a new season, it takes all the thought process 24-7 to make that happen. They're always thinking about it. Those are the relentless innovators. Those are the folks that are going to drive performance for your organization. And, by the way, they have a tendency to draw other relentless innovators uh, to them. They, they're they like people magnets. Well, of course, the big issue is execution and how do you deal with that well here's where uh, i really think in my experience um, the private sector could take uh, a lot of lessons from how uh, the military in particular a lot of these fighter squadrons do business and that is the briefing execution and debriefing process um, and uh, if you go to for example the blue angels they really blur the lines between training uh, and the real world everything they do is briefed thoroughly then they execute it and then they debrief it very very thoroughly they have specific goals and they also when they're building up to uh, a big event they use a building block approach in a very methodical fashion uh, and we used to say you know slower is faster getting it right the first time is very important what I see uh, quite often as I consult uh, especially for for larger companies um, that uh, politics sometimes gets in the way or egos. And what really has to happen is the leadership has to uh, allow themselves to uh, take the rank off, if you will, like we say in the military and be debriefed on their performance just as well as uh, some of the junior folks. On their team, so whether it's preparing, executing, and debriefing uh, negotiations, or a uh, very difficult evolution that you're going to do, uh, they should always follow that same pattern of briefing, execution, and then a very, very thorough debrief, taking away the lessons learned, and that's what you're going to fix the next day. Oh, tell us, how do you build a winning legacy for a company? You know, quite honestly, the uh, some of the best organizations kind of develop that on their own over time, and they they develop this uh, lore, this history. It just becomes part of their legacy. However, you know, if you've got a startup and you're trying to uh, uh, create that kind of feeling that. Be- makes people feel like they're part of a family almost uh you need to pick some things that are very specific that only your organi- organization does you know whether it's uh apple computer and they're using some of the best fasteners inside the computer that the the uh, customer will never see or if it's the blue angels doing the uh, what one of our hardest maneuvers but the most graceful and, and perhaps the easiest looking to do, which is the left echelon roll, the energy that the team gets out of doing those and perpetuating that from the very first team uh, that uh, started doing that back in 1946 till now. That's a, that's a legacy that carries from uh, one team to the next.
0: Rob, what you, uh, in a sense, what you're talking about is, is instilling uh, discipline within an organization and focus, aren't you? They're doing that maybe through leadership?
2: Well, what, uh, what really I see happening, um, with some of the best teams, and this is again why we focus on the, culture of it. When you get a culture that naturally does all the things that we've talked about so far, they prepare the team a certain way, they execute with discipline, as you just described, and then they relentlessly remember where they came from uh, with this legacy idea. That discipline is almost um, uh, irrespective of the leadership. It takes on um, uh, an element of its own that becomes more powerful in fact it's why some of these organizations are so resilient uh, they can withstand changes in leadership changes in environment and they keep going on year for year and that's because their culture has been built to a certain point that uh, it, it just powers through all the challenges that they uh, come across which
1: is why business can learn a lot from the military Absolutely.
2: I mean, uh, you know, taking a look at contingency planning, crisis action planning, you know, when leadership gets cut off out in the field in the military from the uh, uh, from the folks out in the field, they know what to do because they've got mission type orders. They're all aligned. They understand where they're going. Uh, and then when they regain communications, they can get going again. But uh, leadership has provided them uh, an inspirational vision that they can follow. So they know what to do when they get cut off in those tough situations. That is a, another example of a culture of excellence.
0: So how would a leader handle, say, the very individualistic younger people, your high-tech people are coming into some industries?
2: Well, really, I think... Um, you know you go back to that performance triad and take a look at that uh, free will element of it and that's really where that innovation comes from and that's where your relentless innovators are that's the piece that you have to touch and you know what's interesting uh, Gary is that a lot of um, folks think in the private sector when they look at the military they say gosh you know they're very rote they uh, have doctrine that they follow and that's all true, but I will tell you there's a significant amount of free will uh, in how they do business because they have to adjust they have to modify uh, when they're on combat, and the same thing holds true uh for the uh, the private sector as you mo- as you're moving forward. I think the young folks of today really uh, thrive in that kind of environment. Give them the mission-type orders and uh, and then give them focus so they don't get outside the bounds, but that's when you're really going to see their performance take off.
1: Rob Field, thank you very much for your time.
2: You bet. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you very much, Rob. Pretty impressive, um, Leon. I've seen these guys in action and precision, forethought, planning, it's all in, in their DNA.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Very yeah. impressive. And, yeah. you
0: know, I think a lot of companies could... Uh, take a leaf out of their book.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So now, um, Stephen Kekulis. Stephen Kikoulas, the Reserve Bank last week, cut interest rates to a record low. What's your reading of this?
3: Look, it's been apparent for some time the economy's being soft, and by that I mean it's growing in real terms below trend, so below that 3% level that you need at least to create enough jobs to keep the unemployment rate steady on that front we've seen the unemployment rate creeping up over the last 12 to 18 months you're yeah, notwithstanding the monthly volatility in the numbers but basically the unemployment rate's above 6% now A year ago it was about five and three quarter percent. The year before that it was about five and a quarter percent. So the economy is soft. And then to round it out, I guess you've got the very low inflation numbers that were printed in the latter part of January, the falling terms of trade, which seem to be uh, very severe now with the iron ore, coal price, these sorts of things starting to hurt the Australian economy. At this stage anyway, the Aussie dollar was reasonably persistently solid, even though it had fallen, and the RBA just thought, well, Weak economy, low inflation, overvalued currency, risks coming on commodity prices. We'd better just trim rates a bit more.
1: And so that is a sign that the economy is not travelling well.
3: Indeed, indeed. The... Look, it's one of these hard ones for economists. We like to talk in booms and busts, and when it's just a bit below trend, it's hard to find that right adjective. But, you know, the economy is just, just sub-trend. It's just not doing enough. You know, policy has been easy for for quite a while now. You know, a, a 2.5% cash rate up until uh, a couple of weeks ago was low. The dollar has fallen from above parity to below 80 cents. That They're all big moves. But we just have not had that uh, momentum or the sustained momentum in... Uh, the non-mining parts of the economy. You know, retail sales muddling along, building approvals are nice and strong, so that's one area of the economy that's definitely good. But then things like non-mining capital expenditure really weak at this stage as well. So you add it all up and say well you know as the Reserve Bank was sitting there and certainly Treasury is telling the government this with their uh, budget numbers, with the budget only three months away, we've got a weak economy uh, and we just need to do something to get kick-started so that we get not only 3% GDP growth for uh, a year but maybe even three and a half to make some inroads into this unemployment rate.
1: Now, given that that implies that there's a fair bit of political pressure on the Reserve Bank, do you think the uncertainty surrounding Tony Abbott's future and indeed the future of Joe Hockey will keep the pressure on the RBA to cut interest rates again?
3: Look, the the, the, the two are linked there. Um, It's not quite as direct as you imply, but clearly the business sector is pretty annoyed and it's not necessarily the policy decisions themselves but it's the flip-flopping on policy. You know, do we have a paid parental leave scheme that's funded by a company tax levy or not? You know, what are we actually seeing in terms of uh, the path to uh, trimming expenditure so the budget can return to surplus? You know, the surplus seems a million miles away now. It ain't going to happen for, gosh, uh, on current policy settings for five, six, seven, eight years. It's just not going to come around. So the business sector sort of looking at these sorts of things and thinking, well, you know, and what's the what's the attitude on 457 visas, on labour market reform, on industrial relations issues, and um and we don't hear much, or they haven't heard much, and that's why when we look at things like the NAB measure of business conditions, we hear the business council who are clearly more aligned to the coalition parties than the other side when they're complaining about the policy flip flopping. You know, things are, are pretty grim, and in that environment. They don't invest. They don't hire as much as they would otherwise do. And it keeps coming back to at least some policy stability some and some consistency in policy. And I think that's what the business sector, but also the consumer as well, is crying out for so that they know what's going to be coming from the policy makers in Canberra. Well, that would imply we can expect further rate cuts, wouldn't it? Yeah, indeed, I think pressure. I think that's correct. Yes. I think well the budget's still three months away. That's an awfully long time for just the budget. And don't forget that's just the announcement. The actual policy changes take even longer to implement and then feed through the economy. And I'm also making the assumption that they'll implement good policy, so we'll have to wait and see about that. But in the meantime, the RBA is looking at this picture the picture for the Australian economy they made it quite clear in the uh, statement on monetary policy late last week that um, you know the economy does need some more stimulus if we are to achieve this growth rate so the rba has flagged quite clearly to the market uh that there are more rate cuts to come at least another one possibly another two possibly three if things turn nasty if you like so you know the market's pricing in lower interest rates so I think um, uh, if you've got debt at the moment or looking to borrow be it as a consumer or a householder or a business person your borrowing costs firstly are going to be lower or if you've got an investment strategy that you want to implement your borrowing costs will make that uh, investment all the more easier and that's how monetary policy works it's designed to encourage um, some economic growth and greater borrowing it's as simple as that.
1: You mentioned about the forthcoming budget, but the reality is we have um, existing but stalled budget measures still in place and the Prime Minister seems to be mortally wounded and uh, he couldn't really give any indication about the fate of the federal budget. All he could say was uh, we were a bit too ambitious, so he was flagging a less sweeping budget budget in 2015. What's your view about that?
3: Yeah, look, there's stalled measures, if you like. Uh, he's made the mistake, I can't remember the last person to make such a mistake in terms of the government. Yeah, you know, Gillard had to deal with a, not only a hung Senate, but a hung House of Representatives, and she was able to negotiate stuff through. Howard, in most of his period, had a, had a hostile Senate, and even he and Peter Costello, things like a GST for heaven's sake. Gosh, how big a, how big a change is that and easy to shoot down? They had lots of cups of tea with the minor parties in the Senate, negotiated, compromised, and you know played the politics extremely well. They got the measures through. It was extraordinary that you know Mr. Abbott you know, didn't meet Clive Palmer and half of the independents until uh, he'd been in office for about nine months, and that's why they've been shocked and disappointed and been resistant to some of these policy changes that they weren't walked through them. Or offer a compromise. You yeah, know, politics is about compromise. So if you want the education reforms through, we'll give you something somewhere else. And I think that's the dilemma. And they've learned a little bit from that and people like Andrew Robb and, um, others in the Senate have been talking more to the minor parties. That's just got to continue or else we're going to have this budget coming up in, uh, in three months time also blocked if there are any unpopular, difficult or expensive decisions that are taken.
1: What kind of budget are you, would you be expecting in three months time given their past yes. experience over the last few months look that's
3: the dilemma um it's really hard to know what advice they're getting from treasury specifically about the budget right now but i'm sure that's feeding into the mix one part of me says well if we know the economy is subdued and as we just discussed it's growing below trend unemployment's going to be six point something for the next couple of years according to rba and treasury forecasts we need a bit of stimulus (laughs) you know we, we might need to fast track I don't know, some of the infrastructure spending. We might need to do something on the tax front to, or, uh, for small business sector to get the economy growing a little bit more quickly. But, of course, that means the budget deficit will be even bigger. And, of course, the rhetoric from the current uh, side of politics in government is that they are fighting uh, debt and deficit and these sorts of things. So that's one side of the dilemma. The other one is, and this probably feeds back into the RBA and its policy decisions, if they do decide to go ahead and implement tight budget, that is move towards surplus like they suggested they would, then of course we get, um, I won't call it austerity, I don't think it's that extreme, but we get you know some sort of fiscal policy tightness coming through in the next couple of years. That's going to cause the economy to slow a little bit more than it would otherwise do. And maybe the Reserve Bank would be forced to cut interest rates more than they're currently thinking.
1: Right. And of course, if there is a change of leadership coming up, uh, whoever will be the new treasurer will have to deal with an economy that's not travelling well. You've got commodity prices falling. You've got uh, government revenues shrinking. Tax base needs serious repair. What issues would they be facing? It's not going to be easy for them.
3: No, it's not easy, uh, and that's and that's the issue. That if it was easy, I'm sure they would have done it. Um, and, and the new treasurer, if there is one in the months ahead, uh, yeah, they're going to be confronting these difficulties. Now, the treasury, the, sorry, the tax white paper is being written. We know there's an intergenerational report which will highlight some of the issues on healthcare funding, aged funding and just really crystallise the budget issue over the next 5 or 10 years and how we need to fix the tax base. We need to collect more revenue if we want these services to be provided for by the government but also run a balanced budget. And that's where the whole issue of, gosh, dare I say it, the GST, the superannuation tax concessions, payment on uh, fuel subsidies to the mining sector. There's a whole myriad of tax expenditures that there, So rather than just necessarily hiking taxes or slashing spending, maybe it's some of these um, uh, tax concessions that can be looked at, they're really big ticket items, they tend to go to people and uh, who have got plenty of cash, uh, plenty of money, uh, so that fairness issue which seemingly dogged the last budget uh, could be addressed by a bit more progressive thinking and a bit more progressive policy uh, deliberation too
1: and but that would take a major shift in mindset wouldn't it not? it
3: would that's where the new treasurer would have to come in so have a bit. i don't you know who knows at this stage if or when we get one who it would be um it's hard to imagine some of the personalities have been flagged doing it but you know there's also discussion that turnbull will be treasurer maybe he would be a bit more um uh, progressive in some of his thinking about how tax policies should be implemented. But this is all really hypothetical. It's, it, there are issues that need to be discussed, and this might even be our conversation, Leon, for uh, uh, 2016 as we're moving into an election campaign when we do know that the other side of politics has to come up with um, some alternatives. Maybe they'll consider some of these things and put them up as, as their strategy of finding the money to fund the things that they want to do. That'll
1: be a fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen Coolis. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. Stephen's in good form today, isn't he?: is not he what?: <laughs>
0: really good, really good summary, and uh, straightforward and practical.
1: So now Leon the news.: Well, Gary, first of all to China and their trade surplus rose 88 percent to reach 367 billion1. That's about 76.4 billion Aussie. Uh, with the country's imports declining more rapidly than its exports, it's because of the world economy. So exports from the world's second largest economy fell 3.2 percent year-on-year to 1.23 trillion won in January. while imports decreased 19.7 percent to 860 yuan. And the latest figures come after China's trade surplus soared 47.2 percent in 2014 to a record of uh, U.S. 380.46 billion.
0: So, Which is still pretty impressive, even though the world generally is a, a bit
1: worried. That's right, that's right. But uh, the big news, of course, coming out of uh, Europe is the negotiations with Greece, Gary, and the stakes are high because of fears that a Greek debt default could push it out of the euro, triggering turmoil in the EU, and the two sides at the moment aren't budging. EU IMF bailout for debt-laden Greece expires on the 28th of February. Athens doesn't want it extended. They say the bailout conditions, which is sweeping... Public spending cuts and job losses have impoverished Greece, but the German finance minister Wolfgang Scherbel says there will be no new program for Greece and no extra time to reach a deal. Greece's leader Tsipras rejected an extension to the European Union bailout but insisted his country needed a bridge program by June, by which time Athens was expected to negotiate a new deal with the EU and the IMF. And he said his government would stick to the electoral campaign promises and provide fee-free food and electricity for those who'd suffered from the previous government's austerity program, and also battle against corruption and tax evasion on, on a priority basis. And he talked about raising the taxable income threshold, gradually increasing the minimum wage starting next year, dropping a recently introduced property tax. He also promised a plan which includes a 10-point plan, which includes bond swaps to reduce Groot's debt mountain and proposal to make the primary budget surplus for the year 1.49% of GDP instead of 3% demanded by its creditors. Now Greece received 240 billion euros in 2010 as part of a economic assistance package from the EU and IMF and there are doubts about Greece's ability to pay its bills. That makes Greece Europe's most outstanding indebted country when measured against output. Now the French say a compromise can be reached between Greece and its European partners over fiscal and economic plan and European Commission chief uh, Jean-Claude Juncker called on the Greek government to be realistic, saying it must not assume that the overall mood in Europe has changed so much the Eurozone will unconditionally adopt the government program at Cyprus. But they don't think that Greece will leave the EU, and they don't want Greece to leave the EU, Gary.
0: No, and it would be bad for Greece, frankly. They'd lose a lot of opportunities for trade and um, and support.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now to Australia and, Gary, the uncertainty surrounding Tony Abbott's future... as and the future of Joe Hockey, is going to keep pressure on the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates again. That's uh, We heard Steve Kukula's talk about that, but also the Royal Bank of Canada head of strategy, Sun Ling Ong, believes despite the loss of the Liberal Party leadership spill motion, the Prime Minister's position has been considerably weakened. And she says weaker business confidence is likely to keep pressure on the RBA to do the heavy lifting and support further easing in monetary policy.
0: That's true, but they don't actually have very much to uh, to room to play, do they? only no. down at two and a quarter.
1: Well, we're getting very mixed messages from the government too. I mean, on one hand, Tony Abbott saying the budget's too ambitious, and on the other hand, Joe Hockey saying the cuts have to go ahead.
0: Yeah, you know, bit so, bit like Greece versus Germany.
1: That's right. Well, look, Gary, the bottom line is the fate of the federal budget this year and next is now hostage to a mortally wounded prime minister whose hold on his own job is highly uncertain. He was reluctant to express confidence in the future of his ministerial team and who cannot say, and he can't say what he intends to do about the existing but stalled budget measures or how to prosecute new ones. And Treasurer Joe Hockey has told the coalition party room that the sliding commodity price and the measures held up in the Senate leave a $56 billion black hole. That means the budget's never going to get into surplus. No.
0: And this, of course, has sparked all sorts of strange things like uh, a nuclear program from the West Australians and a whole bunch of stuff.
1: That's right. Now, instability within the Abbott government and economic concerns have dampened consumer confidence, offsetting any excitement that last week's rate cut might have sparked. And confidence fell 0.6% last week, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey. But according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute Insects of Consumer Confidence Sentiment, it actually increased by 8%. So depends which figures you read, Gary.
0: You know, sometimes there's statistics and, you know, damned outright lies.
1: Yeah, well, meanwhile, uh, the OECD has told the government that it has to remain focused on economic reform and it's backing the government's road-building push including the Asset Recycling Initiative that promotes privatisation to fund new programs, even though this is causing angst among some states. It's also backing a 1.5% cut in the company tax rate promised from July. And it's also pushed for a higher and broader GST and other key recommendations. says the government has to pursue greater access to affordable childcare to allow work and family life. And I might add that Treasurer Joe Hockey was unable to attend the G20 meeting where that those demands were made. That was in Istanbul because of the um, leadership vote. Yeah. The ANZ job advertisement series showed job advertisements rose a further 1.3 percent, 1.3 percent in January to record their eighth consecutive monthly rise. Job ads have now trended higher for 15 consecutive months and are up 10 percent over the year to January. Gary.
0: Yeah, a lot of that's part-time offers, though.
1: There and uh, the unemployment figures are coming out today and everyone's expecting the unemployment's going to go up to 6.2%. Yep, and
0: continue to rise, some say.
1: Now, uh, South Australia's going to hold a Royal Commission to investigate the state's possible role in the production of nuclear power. Premier, Premier Jay Weatherall says South Australia's home to one of the world's biggest uranium deposits. And he says the Royal Commission is the first of its kind in Australia because uh, usually most Royal Commissions look backwards at what things have gone wrong. This one's looking forward, Gary. That's right. And the ASX has launched a crackdown on so-called zombie junior explorers with dwindling cash balances and little ability to raise first equity. With more than 700 December cash flow quarters lodged by the troubled sector, the exchange is reviewing whether the poorest place entities warrant ongoing listing. And under Rule 12.2 of the ASX listing code, a company's financial conditions has to be adequate to warrant the continued quotation on the stock market. And if concerned, the ASX fires off a query and the company's response is released to the market.
0: Some of these miners would be well in that coal miners.
1: Well, an analysis shows 35% of the listed juniors already zombies are about to become so. They're so short to catch that they've ceased exploring and are spruiking for fresh funding just to pay their overheads. yeah. Well, and that's... some of the zombies are literally down to their last dollar, Gary. Yeah, not good. Commodities price slump means there's no likely end to the capital drought, which started in 2011.
0: Yeah, which immediately raises concerns that some of these guys are, are trading while they're insolvent.
1: Final bit of news: Gary's the profit season has started, and uh, it starts off with the Commonwealth Bank's first half profits. They swelled to a record four point six two billion. Solid revenue growth. Oz Minerals reported a profitable of forty eight point five million in the year. That's up uh, on the twenty nine two hundred ninety four point four million loss. Posted the previous year. Stockland posted a profit of $290 million for the six months of December. That's up 8.5% from the $267 million in the first half of 2014. Domino's Pizza cooked up a $29.1 million net profit. That's up from $20.2 million a year ago. Suncor delivered a net profit of $631 million. That's up 15.5% in the previous corresponding period. Boral posted a net profit of 104.5 million, that's well better than their loss of 26.3 million recorded in the first half of 2014. CSL delivered a net profit of 692.2 million, that's up 7.2 percent on the 645.7 million a year be- year before. Layton posted a net profit of 676.5 for the 12 months of December, that's up 33 percent on 508.7 million. Doesn't look too bad considering the general feeling in the business community. Yeah, most of the profits are coming in pretty good. Yep, so far. And that's it for this week,
0: Gary. Great Leon and uh, next week we're going to be talking to
1: Howard Dre, who runs an outfit called the Old Colonial Cookie Company.
0: Yeah and a very interesting uh, interview it is too. It's a guy who joined the company as a manager and uh, he liked it so he bought it.
1: That's right that's right. In the meantime you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBIZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.